Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Intercepted. I'm Elise Swain, associate producer, and this is a special bonus episode of Intercepted. As I'm clearly not Jeremy Scahill, I wanted to let you all know that he will be returning to host our regular program very soon. On Tuesday, Jose Alavarez and John Washington reported for The Intercept further details of a shocking story about mistreatment of detained women at an ICE detention facility in Georgia. A nurse at a Georgia Immigration and Customs Enforcement prison says the Irwin County Detention Center is performing hysterectomies on prisoners without their consent. Project South sent the explosive whistleblower account to the Department of Homeland Security and the Office of the Inspector General. One jailed migrant recounted, quote, when I met all these women who had had surgeries, I thought this was like an experimental concentration camp. It was like they're experimenting with our bodies, unquote. The story was exposed by a whistleblower named Dawn Wooten. She worked full-time as a licensed practical nurse at the for-profit prison. She's being represented now by the Government Accountability Project and human rights group Project South. Working with her, they both filed complaints to the Department of Homeland Security's Office of the Inspector General. And on Monday, the complaint filed by Project South detailed how an off-site doctor performed hysterectomies on women detained at the ICE facility. Some women who spoke with The Intercept said that they were pressured by the doctor to undergo partial or full hysterectomies. A hysterectomy is an operation that removes a woman's uterus. Detainees allege medical staff did not speak Spanish and they did not have access to interpreters. Patients did not give proper informed consent to have those operations performed, the complaint said. These horrific allegations are the latest in the onslaught of horrors that immigrants and asylum seekers in ICE custody are subject to in the United States. Just this year, we've also seen the Trump White House use the pandemic to severely restrict immigration and ratchet up deportations. We've seen cases of COVID-19 exported to vulnerable countries as sick migrants were stuck on planes and sent home to their home countries in Guatemala and El Salvador. And we've seen the end of asylum in the U.S. as we've known it. Journalist John Washington recently told me, quote, As the world increasingly turns its back on the principle of asylum, denying the persecuted a new home, we're not only imperiling tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of lives, we are undercutting an ancient and fundamental human principle. John is the author of a new book that traces the harrowing journey of one man through Central America, Mexico, and the entire U.S. asylum system. I asked John to read an excerpt of his book, The Dispossessed. Here's John. 
My name is John Washington. I'm a journalist and... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a book about the idea and the ancient practice of asylum. The institution of asylum as we know it today is organized internationally and also under domestic law, and yet it goes back into history as far as history itself goes. Today, asylum is under attack. Many people are seeing what perhaps may be in some countries like the United States, the end of asylum, or at least concerted attacks to limit access to asylum. And in this book, I try to tell the story of asylum itself. And I do that by tracing especially one man's story, Arnovis, and his attempts to find safety after fleeing El Salvador. The Dispossessed. Fourteen men were slumped on mattresses and chairs, smoking inside the warehouse, watching over the migrants. One of the men had a pistol tucked into his waistband. Another had a pistol resting on his lap. The men were fussing with their phones, ribbing each other, killing the morning. A slight waft of marijuana smoke lingered in the air. Someone hawked noisily, spat. Arnovis, a thin, strong, hard-gazing 24-year-old Salvadoran man, nonchalantly grabbed his black knockoff Puma backpack, the one his mother had bought for him back in Iquilisco, wove through a maze of the sitting and slump bodies and walked out onto the patio. Hey, vato, where you going? One of the men called. Just a shower, Arnobi said. That okay? The shower was a five-gallon paint bucket filled with water, a plastic bowl floating on the surface. It was set next to the tall concrete wall. A few wires crisscrossed the sky above the patio. A couple of the 14 coyotes, Arnovis had counted them, could see him through a large window. He grabbed the bucket and hauled it over to the door, where he plugged a coiled heating rod into an outlet, ran it back outside, and dropped it into the bucket. 
He stepped out again and, as the water began to warm, scanned the yard. The walls were about 12 feet high, definitely higher than he could jump. A branch of the mango tree growing on the other side of the wall dipped down far enough he thought he might be able to reach it, but he wasn't sure if it would hold his weight. That branch, he thought, my only hope. Arnovis's brother, living in a suburb of Kansas City, had wired money to the wrong coyote, a man named Gustavo. Well, his brother didn't wire the money. His brother's friend did. His brother doesn't have papers and couldn't send money on his own, which may have been why there was the mix-up. Gustavo, the wrong coyote, got 700 for doing nothing and didn't see any good reason to give it back. The problem, in Varnovis, it was a life-or-death problem, was that the family didn't have any more money. After a deportation to El Salvador from Mexico a few weeks earlier and a down payment on a $6,000 smuggling fee, the family sold the prize goat for 300 bucks to help pay for the first trip. There was nothing left. El Suri, the coyote who did not get the money, was the guy actually planning to take Arnovis across the border. The two of them had hit it off, joking around on the migrant trails. Earlier, El Suri had even suggested Arnovis stay in Mexico and work with them. Arnovis got along with everyone. He liked to tell jokes to quell tension and rarely complained. That is, he was just being himself and wasn't angling for a job in human smuggling. Maybe if it was just between El Suri and Arnovis, they could have worked something out. But El Suri had a boss. The boss wanted his money. As El Suri made a couple calls, Arnovis was hovering nervously. He remembers one call on speakerphone. Someone was trying to convince El Suri to head back south to take the next load. I'm waiting, El Suri said, for this one last kid to pay up. We're trying to get his brother to wire us. The man on the other end of the line suggested El Suri chop off one of Arnovis's fingers and send it to his brother. El Suri hung up. Arnovis leaned up against the warehouse wall. He felt his future rushing at him like an oncoming train. A loud crescendo, and then, not boom, but silence. Death. After another call, El Suri explained the situation. I got no problem with you, man. You're only 200 bucks to me. But the jefe, El Suri said, he doesn't fuck around. He wants your money by 10 tomorrow morning, and if you don't have it by then, he's going to come by, and what he's going to do to you, he's going to cut you into pieces. Arnobis nodded, trying to take it in, trying to think, trying to get out of the way of the train. No money, and he was dead. That simple. After a while, El Suri called Arnobis' brother again, trying to convince him to drum up the money. If you don't send $300, we're going to have to take care of your brother. 
There were about 75 people crashed, sprawled, and breathing on the open warehouse floor. I don't know if he's found an open spot and slumped down to try to think. After a while, he tried calling his brother again, but couldn't get through. Then he tried Gustavo, the coyote who pocketed the money for doing nothing. Surprisingly, he answered. I don't know if this explained the situation. It was all a mistake. He was going to be hacked into pieces if he didn't pay his coyote tomorrow. And they had meant to wire the suit but had accidentally sent the money to him, so if he could just return the money. I don't have it, Gustavo said. What do you mean you don't have it? I don't have it. The $700 my brother wired you? Yeah, don't have it anymore. And just a word of advice, Gustavo added. If they told you they were going to hack you into pieces, you better pay or find a way to get out of there. And then he said something I don't know if he's already knew. These people don't fuck around. Y recuerdo que me dijo entonces, ve cómo te escapas y vete antes de las 10 de la mañana. Porque si dijeron que te van a hacer pedazos, lo van a hacer. Esta gente no bromea. Arnovis went back to El Suri. He told him he'd work for him, do whatever he wanted. El Suri told him that was great, terrific, he'd be glad to have him. But he still needed to pay. He had 12 hours to figure a way out. The night was long, the floor hard and cold. Arnovi sat in a daze, hugging his knees, listening to the snores and moans of his fellow migrants crowding the open floor. It was like they were in a mass grave, but still alive. In his anguish, he still felt hope. He still rejected the fact that his final truth would come to him the next morning. That train, then silence. In the morning, walking out to take a shower on the cold patio, where 14 coyotes were smoking and checking their phones, he found his salvation, a branch. If he could reach it, and if it didn't break, he could pull himself up to the edge of the wall, grab on, and maybe get over. He didn't know what was on the other side, but it was almost certainly better than what was on this side. After plugging in the water heater and looking up at the mango branch for another moment, he walked over to it and jumped. Back in Corral de Mulas, in the Usulután department on the western coast of El Salvador, when he wasn't plowing fields with oxen, laying bricks, mixing cement, harvesting corn, or working for a pittance at a sea turtle hatchery for $180 a month, Arnovis would earn extra money climbing coconut trees. He'd kick off his sandals, if he was wearing any, wind an old rope around one wrist, toss it around the trunk of the palm, wind it around the other wrist, and shut up a 40-foot tree in a few seconds. He would then haul up his machete, which he had tied to the far end of the rope. Amid the scratch of fronds, he'd straddle one of the green branches, tie up a bundle of coconuts, hack it off, and lower the bunch to the ground. Getting down from the tree was trickier than getting up. He'd wind the rope twice around his waist, loop it over the space where the thick frond grew out of the trunk, and lower himself. No belay devices, no locks, no pulleys, nothing but rope, palm, and his wicked grip. Back on the ground, if he was thirsty, he'd wedge a coconut into a stump with his hand, whack and twist the shell off in a flurry of machete hacks, pinprick the white flesh with the tip of the blade, and throw his head back and guzzle. With his squarish face, high forehead, and narrow eyes, his downturned lips tend to spring into an almost goofy, face-wide smile when you catch his eye. 
but when his gaze locks as it does in photographs, his eyes burn with worry and resolve. He wears a flat-top buzz cut and a thin mustache, and is trim with strong arms and shoulders. He also has a light step and an antsy energy. If there's work to be done, such as a bundle of coconuts to harvest, he'll kick off his sandals and be up the tree in seconds. Coconuts go for about 20 cents a piece in Corral de Mules, so if you want to make any money, you have to climb a lot of trees. Sometimes four or five family members would head out together, leaving the house as early as three in the morning with two oxen pulling a tottering cart along the beach heading south. The men climbed for coconuts and the women gathered pink cashew fruits until the heat started burning through the trees. Sometimes they would see small planes cruising low over a nearby airfield cut out of the jungle, spitting out wrapped bundles without touching down and then buzzing back into the sky. These were the kinds of things that they would see, hear, and not say a word about. Ber, oír, callar. A common saying and survival strategy in the Northern Triangle of Central America. The mango branch held. Arnovis reached up his other arm and clutched the next branch, planted his feet against the concrete wall. In another heave, he had a hold on the top edge. He braced his feet, yanked himself up, and then swung a leg over the wall. That was when he heard one of the coyotes. What the fuck? This fucking vato, another shrieked. Arnovis looked down the other side of the wall and saw a few dozen kids in uniforms crossing the patio of an elementary school. The mango tree was too far from to reach the trunk to shimmy down. There was nothing to do but fall twelve feet under the hard concrete in his black hand-me-down dress shoes. Arnovis didn't hesitate. He didn't have time. He didn't even jump. He just let go. That was John Washington reading from his new book, The Dispossessed, a story of asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border and beyond. I really encourage everyone to go pick up a copy. John's latest piece for The Intercept with Jose Oliveras is, quote, he just empties you all out. Whistleblower reports high number of hysterectomies at ICE detention facility. You can follow John on Twitter at JBWashing. This is Jack DeZadaro, the lead producer for Intercepted. I know it's been a while, but we're going to end today with some music. A couple of months ago, I had the pleasure of speaking to Lido Pimienta. You can mute yourself, it's fine. The Colombian-Canadian visual artist and singer. I'm using all of the talents and tools and skills that I have to push my music forward. So for she has a new album out. It's called Miss Columbia. Yeah. 
Like her previous records, Lido manages to artfully marry traditional Afro-Colombian musical influences like cumbia and vallenato and more contemporary electronic beats. Miss Columbia is a complicated love letter that confronts the anti-blackness and misogyny of Lido's country of birth. Lido herself is a black indigenous woman of the Wayu people of northern Colombia. For decades, the Wayu have been forcibly displaced from their land by coal mining companies and have had vital resources exploited by agribusiness. Fresh water, or Wayu gold as they call it, will soon be siphoned from Wayu lands through new pipes to a nearby town where the population are not indigenous. Recently, Lido has used her platform to raise money for these vulnerable communities in Colombia that have been hit particularly hard by coronavirus. The recent surge in violence and civil unrest in that country has only exacerbated the already precarious conditions produced by the pandemic. We'll make sure to link to one of Lido's campaigns in the show notes. Here is Lido Pimienta. My name is Lido Pimienta. I am an artist and a mother. I make songs for the brokenhearted, for the badass, for the strong, everybody. I was born in Colombia in a place called La Guajira, and I was raised in Atlantico in a city called Barranquilla. The port and city of Barranquilla. This city starts off each year with lively Mardi Gras type carnival, which includes a colorful battle of the flowers and the participation of the entire population of the city with their traditional music groups, popular music contests, and that's to dawn nightlife. When you live in a place like Colombia or the North Coast or the Caribbean, you are expected to be happy all the time. And you're expected to be dancing all the time and you're expected to just like take life with sugar and with pop. That wasn't who I was. Went to a bilingual school called the Lyndon B. Johnson School where we weren't allowed to speak Spanish. I was definitely a weirdo and I found shelter in art painting my pictures and listening to metal and electronic and uh, all the folk music that I was not prepared to love at the time. The reigning music in the north coast of Colombia is Vallenato. I wasn't listening to Vallenato. I was peripherically listening to traditional Afro-Colombian music. So people like Totola Momposina. Well, oh, 
Etelvina Maldonado, Martina Camargo, like it woke something in me that was asleep. Once I paid attention to the words, I paid attention to the music, the rhythm, it really helped me understand so much about myself, my community, my country, and the poetry of these songs is very strong. I feel like the biggest influence in my songwriting comes from directly from Afro-Colombian music. It's a music that really hits you, moves you to the core and shakes you up and it wakes you up. And I was listening to the pain of my people. I am black, I am indigenous, you know, I know that pain. music, la cumbia colombiana. You have to have a strong, loud voice that's very focused. And just hearing that and growing up with that, I know that I've been able to share the messages that I share and perform in the way that I perform. It's just within me. It's in my blood. The song Chambaku, it was a song that you could hear at every party. It's a song that you hear in the periphery. I was always impressed by the voice of this child. There's this kind of magic and growing up with my voice, you know, I never really loved my voice that much. Why do I sound like a fucking baby? Why do I sound like a child, you know? But when I heard Chambaku, I was like, you know what? It is great. <laughs> it's wonderful to sound young. It's wonderful to have the pitch that I have. It's one of those songs that helped me be okay with who I am in many, many, many ways. In 1999, the American and Colombian governments began working in earnest on a plan to rescue the troubled country. The important topic is what right do the United States have to do anything Colombia? Well, answer, it has as much right as China has to do something in the United States, namely zero. I mean, uh, for example, does Colombia have a right to uh, bomb uh, Kentucky and North Carolina? Uh, that's where they produce the most lethal drugs in the world. I mean, the number of people who die from tobacco is, uh, last figures I looked at, was about 25 times as high as uh, from all drugs combined. Uh, but uh, no one believes that uh, other countries have a right to uh, carry out fumigation in uh, North Carolina and Kentucky. And that would be considered outrageous, even if it did work. If you continue to grow coca or opium poppy, your crops will be destroyed and you will risk going to jail. We can give you support and assistance that will allow you to live a decent life and to maintain your family.
I was completely aware of USA intervention, USA meddling, and the USA agenda with the Colombian government because my family on my mother's side, they're all indigenous. We are the Wayu people, which is a community that has been abused to no end by European, Canadian, USA corporations and mining corporations specifically, because I am from that culture. I knew and I could see the differences between, you know, going to visit my family in the desert and then being in Barranquilla in my school for like rich kids, you know, the good Colombians, you know, the white Colombians. There was one time where one of the science teachers, he was giving a lecture and he said, can you imagine how terrible our life would be if the Spaniards didn't discover us? And he followed that by saying, you know, instead of McDonald's, we would have like Mac Arepas or Mac Empanadas. Can you imagine how disgusting that would be? So imagine being 14 and and having a science teacher tell you that, thank the Lord, some of us were saved from being mixed with those Indians and those blacks. And look at us, look at us white Colombians, you know. To this day, I don't know what McDonald's tastes like, you know, and I'm so fucking proud of that. It was my mom's decision to move me and my siblings to Canada due to political unrest and due to Colombia's mayhem and inability to keep people safe. So my mother knew that I needed to leave because I was starting to show leftist interests, which You don't want your children to be a part of it because you could just get shot or disappeared by the government. And of course, I was reading Naomi Klein. It's one thing to understand an issue intellectually. It's one thing to read about it. But a performer and a writer, musician like Lido, takes people to the place of most intense emotion, Um, whether it's violence, um, whether it's loss. Is about to become our new Miss Universe. If for any reason she is unable to fulfill her duties, the first runner up will take her place. Good luck to both of you. Miss Universe 2015 is. So the title Miss Columbia comes from Miss Columbia, the beauty queen. It also is a play on the words, I miss Columbia. And I started writing it in 2015 after Steve Harvey fucked up and gave the crown to Miss Columbia when he had to give it to Miss Philippines. 
there's, I have to apologize. The first runner up is Colombia. The Colombian diaspora reacted very poorly, calling Miss Philippines all kinds of horrible names, and they called Steve Harvey all kinds of N-word this, N-word that, monkey this, monkey that. It just forced me to look at myself and question my own citizenship as a Colombian, my spirit as a Colombian. Am I even Colombian anymore? Because I do not share these feelings of hatred for these poor people that made a mistake. In a country like Colombia where kids are dying because there's no water, this is what the fucking Colombians are choosing to unite about? Horrible, vapid, shameful. So I went through all the feelings, you know, and I started writing these songs as a response to to the incident, but also as poems or love letters with a big punch of criticism. I was specifically thinking about black people in Colombia and how it seems like black people are only spoken about or needed or called for the entertainment of the foreigners when they come down for a carnival or the tourists. But the rest of the year, they're just left out to die. I don't know if people are going to be able to put me in this uh, anti-colonial bubble thing. I sometimes feel like people don't listen to the music and they're not listening to the music, they're listening to my Twitter. But it's annoying sometimes when people give me that responsibility of defending an entire people who are very good at defending themselves and speaking up for themselves. And something that happens and something that people might not understand is that when a person is writing a song and that person isn't black or brown or native or anything, that song is just a song. But when somebody like me that is representing, whether I like it or not, all of these oppressed people, when I write a song, that song is a fucking revolutionary song, you know? The songs that I'm singing, the things that I'm singing about, they were stories about me. I wanted to just write music that felt like me. 
current times that we're living in, are things and thoughts and actions that we saw coming and that somebody like Naomi has been preparing us for in a way. Talk about a shock to the system when we as a people are depending on a government that doesn't know what the fuck they're doing unless it's war. The tactics to scare people are there. The tactics to keep people wondering are there, but the solutions and the quick action aren't there unless it's to save or bail the rich out. And I feel like if we as a people realize the power that we really actually have, that post-virus, these corporations are only going to have one way to act, which is to do it, you know, thinking about the people first and the profits later. But people are not willing to put in the work. And people are scared because it has been very successful campaigning to get people to be scared. So I just know that I am an artist and that my role here is to put beautiful things out and I'm going to do that. That was Lido Pimienta. She spoke to me, Jack Desidoro. Again, if you're interested in learning more about the campaigns that Lido has been working on, we'll include links in the show notes. And that does it for this special bonus episode of Intercepted. Jeremy Scahill will be back soon. Until then. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.